Open your Bibles to uh, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. If you uh, are interested in the homeschool conference we spoke about just a a little bit ago, uh, just to let you know, I I was interested in it myself. I looked into it a little in depth because I was amazed that it was five days long. It's like, who has five days for a conference these days? But um, in reality, the way the conference is set up is it is completely free if you watch it live. Um, If you don't have time to watch it live, or if you don't have time to watch all of it live, you can pay $20, and then all of the uh, messages and workshops will be available to you after that to watch or listen to anytime you want. They'll even provide manuscripts if you'd rather read through the instruction that's given in that conference. So there are some options for people who think, well, that sounds like a, a great opportunity, but maybe I've got prior commitments, or I don't have the time to sit through that five days in a row, it might be a great compliment still to what you're doing to raise up your kids in the truth. And so uh, if that is something that interests you, then look at our uh, e-blast. We sent out information about that this week, and if not, we'll do that this week coming up. Always good information in the e-blast, so don't let that one just slip into your uh, your junk mail file. Um, if you ever have questions about what's going on at the church, that's a great way to stay uh, up, up, uh, up to date on what we're doing. Um, how many of you guys have ever been to the DMV in person? That might be coming a thing of the past as everything is online. The DMV in person is one of life's least enjoyable experiences. But my worst experience at the DMV was not the DMV's fault. Many of my bad experiences there have been from the bureaucracy and the red tape and uh, some of the hoops that you have to jump through to get things accomplished, the great expense that it costs to even drive a vehicle these days. But I remember one time as a younger man, I went to the DMV, and I needed to transfer a vehicle into my own name. So I I got all the paperwork I thought that I needed, and I got the, the fee ready to go, and I got my proof of insurance, and I went and did what every uh, warm-blooded Californian does. I sat in the lobby for an hour, an hour and a half before it was finally my time to go up to A5, and I went up to that window, and I brought all my stuff with me, and I went to transfer the title, and I had forgotten to bring the title. (laughs) I had a stack of paper, one that needed one of those big metal clips, you know, with the spring on it, so you don't lose all your stuff. All these papers, all this evidence, all this important information, and I had forgotten the most important thing The title that showed the person who used to own the vehicle was signing it over to me so that I might legally own the vehicle. So as much as I whined and tried to convince the lady at the window to give me the transfer anyway, she said, there's nothing I can do. You're going to have to come on back and spend another glorious hour and a half with the people of the DMV. So that to say... You can do a whole lot of work, a whole, whole lot of effort can go into what you're planning to do, but if you forget the most important thing, sometimes all of that work is for nothing. And we're going to see that as we enter into chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians um, and learn about the key ingredients to living out the faith, which is love. Love for God and love for neighbor. We are essentially done with chapter 12, but I asked you to turn there today because there's one little bit of the end of chapter 12 which sets us up for chapter 13. By way of review, Paul began chapter 12 by declaring to the Corinthians that the proof of our faith is not 
a spiritual gift manifestation in our lives. It's not some holy and supernatural manifestation of the power of God that proves that we actually belong to God. The proof of faith is our confession that Jesus alone is the Lord. That confession, if it is an honest one, will be accompanied by obedience to the Savior. But we shouldn't insist that a saved person has any one particular gift as evidence of their salvation. All who confess Christ belong to Him and are in fact given spiritual gifts that were meant to building up those who are part of the body of Christ, the church, helping them to grow in strength and the worship of God. Uh, Paul has taught us that those gifts are very diverse. They differ from person to person. And while some may seem more praiseworthy than others, some gift might be more remarkable than another on the surface, every gift that God gives to His people is important to the function, the health, and the well-being of the church. The church is to see itself as Christ's body on earth, as the physical manifestation of God's will in this planet. Each Christian is a member of that overall body, of which Jesus Christ is the head of the body. So the spiritual gifts are not for any one individual's blessing or glory. They are, in a sense, the property of the community. That God has given them to each of us so that we might bless one another. They are to be used for the edification and the building up of the whole body of the saints. Every gift is important and plays a part. And we should honor every gift and every member of the body. Last week... We finished up chapter 12. Paul, after making a strong statement um, in argument for the diversity of the gifts, ends the chapter by acknowledging that God does give some gifts in a way that has a wider impact on the body of Christ. We talked about those who have teaching gifts or apostolic gifts or those who are blessed with the ability to prophesy the truth. And that there's nothing wrong with desiring those higher gifts. We don't put those higher gifts on a pedestal. We don't undervalue the other gifts or take them for granted, but it is good to have a desire to see God use you in an influential way in the church. So there's nothing wrong for desiring those, those higher gifts. Now, the importance of Paul's argument is going to become more apparent to us once we get to chapter 14 of this letter. Remember, the discussion of spiritual gifts is a three-chapter theme spanning from chapters 12 through 13 and into 14. In chapter 14, Paul will zero in on a major issue that has plagued the church at Corinth, one that has everything to do with their misunderstanding and misapplication of the spiritual gifts, in particular, their overemphasis on the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, I took us down this recap trail one more time this morning because for the last few generations, at least, and in our culture at large today, chapter 13, which is one of the most beloved chapters of the entire Bible has been widely taught in such a way as to completely divorce it from this larger context. Think about it. When you hear the words, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, probably one of the furthest things from your mind is spiritual gifts. And yet here, chapter 13 sits right in the middle of a technical discussion on the importance of the spiritual gifts. And as we will see, that context will play a huge part in helping us to understand that the principles regarding love that are being spoken of so eloquently here in chapter 13 
are not particularly aimed at marital love. Although how many of us have heard that read during a marriage sermon? And it's not really inappropriate to use it there. But this, these verses are particularly focused on love that members of God's church are supposed to have for one another. A genuine God-patterned love that drives us to use every gift that God has given to us to care for one another, to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's read chapter 12, just the last bit of chapter 12. It points us into chapter 13 and then the first three verses of chapter 13. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, says Paul, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Please bow with me as we pray. God, prepare our hearts today. I thank you that you have given us this text, and I'm eager for our church to benefit from learning more about the technical beauty of love. Let us have a fuller picture, a more biblical understanding of what it means to love another person, what it means to love you, God, and to be enamored with your character and to want what is best for you, which is your glory proclaimed through your people. I pray that we would want what is best for one another as well, Lord, that we would want our brothers and sisters to be as close to you as possibly they could be. I pray, Father God, that if you have given me gifting, if you have blessed your servant uh, with the ability to communicate today, that you would use your Holy Spirit to bring the communication of this word to this congregation in such a way that they might not be confused about what's being said here, but that they would be able to understand and apply your scripture not just for their own benefit, Lord God, but for your glory, that you might be proclaimed to the world in a way that accurately um, reflects the goodness of your character. We pray, uh, Father God, that as we think and as we meditate, that we would recognize that this too is worship, that our singing is for sure praise to you, Lord, but every bit of obedience that we give to you is worship as well. So help us to worship you beyond our hour and a half here this morning, Lord. Help us to go into the world and worship you through active obedience as well. We thank you, God, for making that possible through the Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Concerned with the way that the Corinthians are conducting themselves, Paul is preparing to reveal something significant to them. There is a better way to live. There is a more excellent way. And it is a way that Paul hopes his friends will soon turn to once they see the significance of it. Now, this opening section of chapter 13 is very poetic in its feel, though it's not properly a poem. And the words that Paul uses to turn our attention to this more excellent way have a certain beauty to them as well. Remember that before Christianity was called Christianity, it was often referred to as the way. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any 
who were of the way, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the way was originally what Christians were called. They were, they were part of the way, members of those who were following after the way of Jesus Christ. And ironically, we see Saul, before his conversion, wanting to persecute the way. But now after the intervention of Christ in his life, he is now showing the excellent way to others so that they might walk in it. So when Paul begins to point them to a more excellent way, he is, it is likely that he's suggesting the very practice of their faith is falling short of what it needs to be. They lack a signature quality that should make a sinner who has been saved by the grace of God stand out as distinct from other people. They are lacking genuine love for one another. Someone, has, someone who has uh, of the generosity and, and mercy of God have been saved by grace, but loses sight of the commandments of their God and begins to live as though he is not the Lord of their life anymore, but, uh, but is instead just a God that saved them one day in the, in the past, but isn't very relevant today. We might describe that person as someone who has lost their way, right? Someone who has wandered away from the path that they should be on. Surely Paul is helping to restore some in Corinth who have done just that. Surely is helping others who are in Corinth Avoid making that mistake in the first place. He wants to keep them on this proper way of life, this more excellent way. And of course, in John 14, 6, Jesus de describes himself as the way, as the truth, as the life. And so the proper way of life for any Christian must be rooted in a Christ, rooted in Christ and must follow the pattern of love and truth that he has set for us. So in showing his brothers and sisters in Corinth the more excellent way of love, Paul could do no better than point them, again, to the kind of love that is characterized and lived in its greatest expression through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When we study Scripture, it is always good hermeneutical practice to pay attention to shifts, shifts in perspective. If things seem to be going one way and then change direction even slightly, we should notice that and ask why. Did you notice that Paul has switched to the first person here in the beginning of chapter 3? In chapter 12, he had, had ended with addressing the Corinthians through the second person. In other words, he was addressing them directly. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. There was power in that. He's, he's personalizing the message. You are the body. This is how you ought to live. But now as Paul enters into a description of a hypothetical situation meant to cause the Corinthians to question the way that they had been living, he turns the lens back on himself. He switches to the first person. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith, if I give all that I have away, and if I deliver up my body to be burned. See how Paul is, is, is using the first person here. For what reason... Does Paul use this first-person perspective in these three verses to cause the Corinthians to examine their own actions? This is a shift brought about by Paul's pastoral heart for his brothers and sisters there in Corinth. He needs to be critical to them. He needs to draw their attention to something that is deficient in the way they are living out their faith. But his aim is not to crush them. His aim is to build them up. It is to edify his brothers and sisters in Christ by speaking in the first person, by showing that he is subject to the same rules that he's about to describe to them. He's being kind. He's not pointing too heavy a finger at his Corinthian friends. 
He's indicating that the law of God is not situational. It applies to all, including to an apostle like himself. It would apply to a prophet or to an evangelist or to any of the, the offices that he mentioned at the end of 12. Paul may be an apostle, but that doesn't mean that he's above the principles that he's about to share with his friends. Every member of the body of Christ, every individual part and piece of the body is subject to the commands of Scripture. Now, this is actually a good approach to try addressing a brother or sister who's in sin. We know that if you are a believer and you have a family now of believers around you, that there may be a time when you find your brother or sister to be struggling with sin themselves, where they've, they've allowed some sort of worldly habit that is against the law of Christ to come into their lives. And though we are saved by grace through faith, it is important for us to honor the law of God and to love Him by obeying His commandments. So you might have to go to a brother or sister in Christ at some point and, and, and pull them to the side and address that sin. And this might be a good way to approach that. You bring them to the side and you say, you know what, if, if I were engaged in such and such a sin, it would be dishonoring to God. It would be hurtful to me for such and such reasons. This is why that sin is, is difficult. Is, this is why this is the kind of sin that God has commanded us to go against. And brother or sister, I, I've seen evidence of this in your life. As much as it would hurt me, I see that it is hurting you too. Let me come alongside you. Let me care for you and pray for you. How can I assist you to obey the Lord better in this regard? So this personalized approach helps the person who's being confronted to understand that the one calling out the sin is not just tossing out judgment or trying to make the individual feel bad. They're trying to hold their friend to the same standard that the Word of God holds all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ to that standard of grace. So Paul's reference to himself here is also, of course, of course consistent with the metaphor of the church as a body. Think about this. If, if you are loveless in the application of the gifts, that's not just going to affect you. That's going to affect your sister sitting next to you, your brother sitting around, across the aisle from you. It's going to affect me because we are one body. And when the body gets sick, the whole body feels it. If I am loveless in my application of the gifts, then we will all be affected by my failure to love properly. So this hypothetical first-person situation is presented by Paul to expose what is lacking in the way the Corinthians are using their spiritual gifts. Their gifts are not being shared with one another in love. Verses 1 through 3, Paul's going to catalog seven actions. Each of these qualities or abilities is valuable in and of itself. Each one is a quality to be praised. But Paul insists here that there is something more valuable than any one of these ab abilities. An attribute that must be present if any of them are to have eternal value towards the one who wields them. And he begins with excellence in speech. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, if I approach chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians on its own, apart from the context of the rest of this letter, then I might read this and immediately think that the exceptional speaking that Paul is referring to is eloquence or preaching in the pulpit or perhaps the ability to persuade. In the Roman culture of the day, that was a huge thing to the people uh, 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 that were Gentiles at that time. In Corinth, it would have been no different. The skills to captivate with words, 
to inspire with bold and beautiful speech, to convince and to persuade, to motivate and to command. Those, those are big deal to the, the Gentiles who lived in the Roman Empire. And we've seen already that some in Corinth were prioritizing Apollos over the other apostles. They considered him their favorite in large part because Apollos had this strong ability and gifting to preach and to speak with such eloquence. But the context of what Paul has so far been addressing makes it very unlikely that verse 1 here in chapter 13 is addressing only or even primarily the art of refined communication. In fact, context makes it clear that Paul has begun his what-if hypothetical by confronting the spiritual gift that the Corinthians are so overly fascinated with, that being the gift of speaking in tongues. This is also probably why it's the only attribute that's addressed by itself. Verse 1 just talks about speaking. And then verse 2 goes in to express four different possibilities. Verse 3 talks about two different possibilities. But in verse 1, he really focuses in on this one ability, that of being able to speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Now, the wording that is used... Um, is specific to what Paul is driving at here. Two kinds of speech are addressed. The tongues of men, uh, which could speak of more conventional spiritual gift of speaking in a language that you might not naturally know, but is supplied to you, this knowledge, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of that being to spread the gospel to a people who need to have it. This is, of course, more than the ability to communicate in conventional languages effectively. I've got friends who are very, very proficient in language learning and have been able to gather for themselves six or seven different languages. I remember uh, being very jealous of those students in seminary who just picked up Greek like that. That, for me, was, it was a struggle. It was more difficult. I had to really put the time in and, and really strain to learn. So some people have a natural ability to learn languages, but that, that's not really what this is talking about when Paul says to speak in the tongues of men. He's talking about more about what happened at Pentecost. Right? Remember what happened in, in Acts chapter 2 when this small group of faithful Christians who didn't know exactly how things were about to play out, had seen Jesus, their Savior, crucified, had seen the evidence that he rose from the grave, they had witnessed the empty tomb, and then he had indeed appeared to them in person in those 40 days following his resurrection. We're going to talk about this in depth tonight, so if you'd like to hear more about the exaltation of Christ, please join us at 6 o'clock. Really looking forward to preaching that this evening. Uh, but those disciples had seen the risen Savior and now needed to tell the world that indeed Christ had done exactly what he said he was going to do. They had torn down the temple of his body. They had crucified him. And in three days, he kept his promise and raised from the dead. He was no longer in a grave. He was alive. He was victorious. People needed to hear this. Not just people who spoke Hebrew. Not just people who spoke Greek. And so in the day of Pentecost, we read about how the Holy Spirit dropped down onto the believers the ability to speak in languages they did not know, real languages, diverse languages from far-off areas such as Egypt, Northern Africa, Asia. Different believers who spoke different languages had convened in Jerusalem, and the Lord made it possible for these apostles, these disciples, to speak the gospel to those who otherwise would not have been able to understand it in their foreign language. So that is speaking in the tongues of men. 
But he also says here, those who speak of the tongues of men and the tongues of angels. That's curious, isn't it? While Paul does not elaborate on this explicitly, there is enough evidence in the following chapter to indicate that this is likely some kind of language perhaps used in the heavenly realms. Angels are probably not walking around in heaven right now speaking English to one another. You know, every culture is kind of centric on themselves. They sort of think of their own language as the most important language. But I have to imagine that there is some greater language, some higher language that angels are using. They likely have a means of communicating that would sound foreign to us. We wouldn't understand it. To be able to speak in the language of heaven would not be effective as a means of speaking to other human beings because you and I don't speak the language of heaven. But it is very likely that some in Corinth were claiming that they had been gifted by the Spirit to be able to speak in this heavenly language. Now, whether it was authentic or not is up for debate, and we're going to get into that more when we look in chapter 14. But if these individuals were speaking in some language that no one else could understand, what kind of an impact was that going to have on the people around them? Would it be beneficial to them? No. It would be disruptive. It would be confusing. And so Paul's going to address that in due time. 1 Corinthians 14.9 So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. So we're going to look at that in more depth in a couple of weeks. But Paul's language in chapter 14 would have us believe that the act of speaking in a tongue that no one could understand had become not only a distraction to the gathered Lord's Day service there in Corinth, but also a divisive issue that made some feel like maybe I'm not as holy as my brother or my sister in Christ because they seem to be able to speak in the language of angels, but I can't, and I can't understand what they're babbling over there. So this issue was creating separation instead of bringing the unity that the spiritual gifts are supposed to bring to the church in love. If their attitude towards the spiritual gifts is making some of the community feel like second-class citizens, then all that speaking is doing no good to the church. Remember, the aim of the gifts is the edification of the body of Christ. That happens when we love the body as we love ourselves. How important is it to have love for your neighbor? Let's return uh, for a moment to that important teaching of Christ, Mark chapter 12. Go ahead and flip in your Bibles to that if you want. Also have it up on the screen if uh, you can't get there fast enough. But in Mark chapter 12, there is uh, an individual who comes to Jesus in his earthly ministry and, and asks him what the greatest of the commandments were. Uh, maybe he did this because he knew the answer already and wanted to just be affirmed that he knew the right answer. Maybe he did it because he was trying to expose Jesus. Maybe if Jesus had changed priorities then that would make him an enemy of every Jew who firmly knew the answer to the question. But let's see what Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor, not just as you love yourself, but what does it say there specifically? As yourself. Meditate that on, on that for a minute. How does that correspond perfectly with the metaphor of the church being the body? 
the church is who I am. So if I love the church, I am in essence loving the body of which I am a part. So this love for self is not selfish in, an, in, in some sort of worldly way, but it is loving the church because the church is what you are. You're a part of this being that God has formed, this, this corporate body of Christ. If I fail to love my neighbor, I can do all the outwardly spiritual things that I want to do, and the result will not be the manifestation of God's will. In such cases, the tongue speaking, which was unable to bring any insight or understanding or benefit to the brothers and sisters in Christ, was no better than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And you know what that's like, right? Not a whole lot of gongs in our society today or clanging cymbals, but... I experienced this firsthand as the Lord was prepping me to preach this morning when at about uh, 10.30 at night, my neighbors decided to turn on their, their jams and pump them up to full volume, and we got to listen to that for the next couple of hours. Uh, it might even be really nice songs, but if you're not trying to hear it and you're trying to sleep, what does it sound like? It doesn't sound like smooth jams. It sounds like an alarm clock in your ear all night long, right? And so this activity, the speaking in tongues, which to the one speaking seemed like a very great gift, was becoming annoying and shrill. It was hurting the brothers and sisters in Christ by disrupting the service and keeping them from growing in their faith in the Lord. It is not only annoying to the brothers and sisters, though. This is like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal in the ears of the God who we want to glorify, because it is His command to love the brothers as we love ourselves. And if we express the gifts without love, we are not loving our brothers. It's the equivalent of saying, look at what God has given to me and not given to you. That's not loving and that's not edifying. It is a selfish exposition, not a loving benefit to the church. Second of all, it is a disruptive and annoying sound to our brothers who are not gifted in these spectacular ways and cannot share in their benefit because they don't understand whatever language was being spoken by these Corinthians who were so, uh, so committed to speaking and using their gifts in the public assembly. So he addresses the tongues first, because I think it is the matter of primary importance, but then he expands upon this hypothetical. Secondly, Paul mentions excellence in prophecy, which is understanding and proclamation. And if I have prophetic powers... Prophecy relates closely to speech, right? It must, for prophecy is God's truth proclaimed. It is the, the message of God delivered to the people, either through preaching, through writing, through exhortations. So prophecy being the gift that Paul will soon strongly urge the Corinthians to desire more than the other gifts is not exempt from the law of love either. Prophecy must be given in love. It must be given in care and concern, and with the, the love of God always in mind as we give it to others. Could a person be used for prophecy but not have love? That's a good question, and the Bible gives us a good answer for that if we think back to the book of Jonah. Jonah was a man who was given a critical message from God to a Gentile people. Jonah was told that he must go to a land named Nineveh, the land of the Assyrians, and he must preach to them. He must prophesy to those Ninevites that they must repent or face destruction and judgment. Jonah was to travel to that place to give this message to help those individuals avoid the fiery destruction of judgment that was to come. But there was a problem with the messenger. 
Jonah hated the Assyrians. He did not love them. He did not care for them. He was well aware that this message represented the only hope for mercy that the Ninevites had, but he had no interest in giving that people a second chance. Jonah refuses to go. We all are very familiar with the story, I, I trust. Jonah gets on a boat and heads to the exact opposite of the direction he's supposed to go. But ultimately, he has no choice in the matter, does he? The sovereign God, who will indeed fulfill his plan, causes a great storm to disrupt the ship that Jonah is upon to the point where people on the ship think they're about to die. They start throwing their cargo overboard. They're panicking. They don't know what to do. And Jonah then finally comes out of the shadows and says, I'm the reason why this storm has come. I know that I'm disobedient to my God. Send me over the side of the ship and the storm will stop. And at first, they, they don't want to believe that that's what's going on there. They, they can't really fathom that, but they don't have a choice. So ultimately, they throw Jonah over the side of the boat, and he's consumed by a great fish. That great fish miraculously takes Jonah back to the place that he was fleeing from, spits him out on the shore, and God makes his servant speak as he was intended to speak. Now, this rescue from the storm doesn't cause Jonah to change his mind about the Ninevites. He comes up. Uh, smelling a little worse, perhaps, a little bit more tired, but nevertheless bitter inside. For this people, the Assyrians, had done great harm to the Hebrew people. They had been vile and wicked in war against his own people. He might have perhaps even lost people that he loved to the swords of the Assyrians, who were a cruel and brutal nation. So he doesn't want to preach this message, but he has no choice. So he marches himself into the city and he begins to proclaim the message, hoping probably in his heart that they would ignore him, maybe even hoping that they would reject him and kick him out of the city so he can go back to God and say, see, I told you, God, they don't deserve to hear your word. But instead, something incredible happens. Though the messenger is loveless, the message of love prevails. And these Ninevites are cut to the heart. They begin to see the weight of their sin, they repent and ask for forgiveness of Jonah's God. The message did some good, right? Though loveless, God used it to cause the Ninevites to repent. But it did no good to the messenger. Pay attention to this. His service to the Lord was not a blessing to him. We see Jonah directly after the turn of events go up on a hillside and sit bitter of heart, stewing in his sadness, wrapped up in his own forlorn uh, attitude to the degree that God brings a small vine to grow up over him to give him some shelter. And when the sun comes and that vine begins to wither, Jonah is more brokenhearted about the vine than he is about the people that he was just used by God to save. And so the lack of love didn't hurt those who received the benefit of the gift. The Ninevites were spared, but it hurt the messenger. And it hurt him badly. Ultimately, prophecy is a powerful gift from the Lord, a gift by which God uses us to proclaim his truth. But if we lack love for God and for our neighbor, then even though we may proclaim his truth, we will not be benefiting from the process by sharing in the joy of God's truth revealed. It will do us no personal good. The third and fourth expressions of Paul's here in chapter 13, verse 2 is excellence in understanding and excellence in knowledge. These two are related. Uh, 
They are both able to be acquired in a non-spiritual way by study to some degree. You can become familiar with the books of the Bible. You can read about theology and learn the systems that describe it properly. But there is a spiritual gifting that gives one a particular ability to really know and appreciate the things of God, to understand and to retain as knowledge the things of God. And this is a Corinthian favorite, isn't it? We've already seen that it is possible to lay hold of a knowledge and understanding of God. And the Corinthians thought very highly of the gifts of understanding and knowledge. Paul has already admonished the Corinthians for their deficiency in this regard. Uh, They had knowledge and understanding, but they were failing to apply love to those gifts as well. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So this misappropriation of understanding and knowledge had already been shown to be a problem in the Corinthian congregation as their understanding and their knowledge was not seasoned with the salt of love. And we have probably all encountered at some point or another an example of academic theology that is tragically lacking zeal for the Lord or love for the sons and daughters of God. It's unfortunately not uncommon to see the knowledge of God used as a sledgehammer to grind to dust the people of God rather than as a means to point them to the well of grace that is Jesus Christ the Son. This week, a Baptist pastor who I've really enjoyed learning from over the years, his name is Jared Longshore, announced his resignation from Founders Ministry, which is a ministry we love here at this church, a great resource for brothers and sisters who consider themselves Baptists and want to learn more about the history and the integrity of the the way that Baptists think. Um, He decided that it was no longer appropriate for him to be a part of that ministry. Now, at first, it wasn't clear why he had stepped down. So the way that it was announced created some problems. Some feared for the worst. They wondered if Jared had fallen into some sort of moral failure or corruption. But eventually, uh, Jared issued a statement that cleared it up. And essentially, over the last several months, he had been wrestling with theology. He had been uh, speaking extensively with some Presbyterian brothers, and he had begun to shift his understanding of baptism. Rather than believer's baptism, he was beginning to think of baptism in the Presbyterian mode of baptism, which is the baptism of infants, bringing people into the new covenant as members of the covenant community. So, Obviously, my heart breaks that Jared is thinking of these things in that way because I don't think that's the right way to think about Scripture. And and unfortunately, many people who believed similarly did not give Jared very much grace in their response. The reactions in the Twitterverse were quite disheartening. Some were urging Jared to reconsider for good reasons. Think carefully about your doctrine. Give this some time. Don't make a hasty decision. We are Baptists because we have strong convictions about this issue. Though it is a secondary issue to the gospel and there is room for open debate, we can still link arms with Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ. Nevertheless, the beauty of that sacrament uh, is such that we hold firmly to the things that we believe about baptism. 
But some were extremely harsh and unloving to Jared. Some were speaking about him as though he were somehow a traitor, somehow revealing a lack of true faith because he had settled on an understanding that was different from their own. Many showed no compassion to the difficult decision and the tough personal journey one has to take when they work out their own salvation in fear and trembling. To have a knowledge and a wisdom that is devoid of love is to rob the gifts of their power and impact. And I, I, I fear that few who came down on Jared so harshly really made much of a difference in some who might be on the fence because what they showed was a lack of love for a brother, not an understanding and a care for them which would point him back to the source for why we believe what we believe about baptism. So it is possible to have great wisdom and great understanding and yet to lack love and for that wisdom and understanding to be more of a burden to the church than a benefit to it. Now, there is a counterpoint to this. Some ask, what about those verses where we see someone doing things that are good, but doing them with the wrong motives, and they're affirmed in doing those things? It would appear that there is still some value to what is being preached if someone preaches without love, but yet preaches what is strictly the truth. How is that consistent with Paul's preaching here that says that that kind of preaching would be nothing? in the eyes of the Lord. They might cite Philippians 1, 15 through 18. It says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. Paul is thinking that their preaching of the gospel is just going to stir up more hatred against Paul. But the latter, those who preach from goodwill, preach it out of love knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So he's, he's pointing out what is true, that some people preach for the wrong reasons. Some people preach to build up their own platform or to make a name for themselves. Some people preach simply because they want a salary and they know that that's a job that they could do. And so some people preach for the wrong reasons. Others preach for the right reasons. They preach out of love. They preach because they have good intent towards the church and want to honor the Lord God. Verse 18, what then? In other words, what do we do about this discrepancy? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So be careful here. What is Paul saying? Is he saying that it's perfectly okay to preach the gospel without love? No. He is saying that it will happen and it is not good for someone to preach without love, but if it makes the word of God resound in the world, if it gets the message out there, then there can be some good from it. God can use the vilest means to accomplish something good, can't he? God can use a terribly unrighteous nation such as Babylon to chastise Israel, Judah, and cause their hearts to turn back to the Lord. God used Joseph's betrayal by his unloving brothers and his unjust imprisonment to ultimately preserve the, the line of promise and to get Joseph's family through a terrible famine to preserve their well-being. God used all of those things and orchestrated them in such that the promise and the covenants of God would not be corrupted. He can and is using the current condition of this pandemic in our world today to refine the church and to help people understand how important the church needs to be in their lives. And how important it is to cling to the right doctrine of the Word of God and to not let the fears of this world captivate our hearts and make us think less of the power of our God. And of course, I think the most vivid example 
is the fact that God can use the suffering of his son, Jesus Christ, to set us free. Was it good for Christ to go to the cross and suffer the terrible rejection and pain and heartache that he suffered there? Well, it was good for you and me. It produced something very good. And God was not unloving to send his son to the cross because God knew that his son would triumph. But there is no doubt about it that when we think about the events of Calvary, when we think about the fact that Jesus, who came and took on flesh to live with us, and who did all of the things that we fell short of doing, kept every single law of God and should have been exalted for that, to think about the fact that he was willing to be crushed for our sins, to be treated like the vilest pedophile, to be treated like the worst rebel against the kingdom, to be struck up onto a cross and to be put in front of everyone in his example of, of criminal behavior, that he would bleed, that he would suffer, that he would suffer ridicule and an offense like that. That is an ugly thing. It is, it is a terrible and tragic thing, and yet God has used that vile event to secure redemption for us. That because of his cruel suffering, because of his tragedy, we might experience the great grace and joy of being set free from our sins. See, we all owe a debt of, of uh, judgment to God. We have broken his law. Without an exception in this rule, every one of us has broken the law of God. And because God is good and worthy and holy, he deserves to be obeyed, he deserves to be honored. Our rebellion against him is a rebellion against the kingdom of heaven. And there is just consequence for rebelling against the king of heaven. That just consequence is judgment and damnation. But because of his great love for us, Jesus decided that he would send his son to come to earth and take on flesh, that he might fulfill the law in the ways that we could not, and then voluntarily pay the price that he did not owe, so that you and I would not have to pay that price ourselves. Isn't that a beautiful exchange? that he took our sin upon his shoulders so that we might be set free and have eternal life. What a beauty that is. God is taking something great out of something vile and terrible. The activities described in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, are not devoid of value. It's not like there is no value to them. And the person who receives ill-motivated service often does not see the problem. They rejoice in the service that is given. Someone who preaches without a loving heart, someone might still be benefited from that preaching if it has truth in it. Someone who uh, it hears the, 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 sac uh, the sacrifice of the saints, even if they were sacrificing of their own things because they were really trying to boast, boast themselves up and, and have something to brag about, they might still benefit from the sacrifice. They might still benefit from the, uh, the gift. It's not devoid of value. But that does not nullify Paul's argument here because he's speaking not of the practical value of the action, but of the supernatural value of doing these things according to love. The one who practices these gifts without love for the church is himself missing the personal benefit of serving others with the spiritual resources that God has provided. We have a couple more to address before we end here. We have a uh, an excellence in faith that Paul talks about here. And if I have all faith so as to move mountains. Now, this isn't just re referring to saving faith. It's the kind of faith that could move a mountain, right? So it's referring to the kind of faith that accompanies the gift, the spiritual gift of miracle working, something that was 
somewhat common back then, that the apostles and, and, and some of the early believers were able to perform miracles in, in such a way to affirm that Jesus was indeed the Christ and that this message, though very radical, was something that they could believe came from, from the Lord himself. If, accompanied by, if unaccompanied rather by love, these otherwise remarkable gifts would not erase the grim fact that the one performing them would still be nothing. It makes me think here that use of the word nothing reminds me of John 15 when Jesus describes himself. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches and he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit but without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me he is cast out. Cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. So Jesus reveals that one who fails to remain and abide in Christ can do nothing of good value. But Paul's assessment draws from verse 6 in John 15, which describes a severing of that fruitless branch, that describes a dry and unnourished branch that is not abiding in Christ, must be cast into the fire and burned forever. That's a picture of judgment, friends. That is someone who has not love for the Lord God. Not only can they not do anything of real spiritual value, but they themselves are as nothing. Paul here says that without love, not only would his actions be empty, but he himself would be nothing. His lack of love, if it was consistent and persistent, would indicate not only fruitlessness, but faithlessness. And there is no hope for those who have no faith in Christ. In verse 3, as the beauty of Paul's prose picks up its steam... The subject matter seems to expand in scope. Paul is now speaking about a person's apparent willingness to forsake what is dear to them. Can that be done without love? The sixth point, excellence in generosity, being willing to give. The seventh point, excellence in self-sacrifice, even being willing to give of one's personal self or body. These two go hand in hand. Two gifts that we might assume come with love might actually lack love themselves. It is possible to give, isn't it? But to do so with the wrong heart. We saw this in Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira, who saw around them many such as Barnabas giving sacrificial gifts. They would sell their land off and seeing the great need that the churches had, they would take the profits of that land and they would use it as a resource for the people of God to strengthen the brothers and sisters who were struggling or who were maybe experiencing disconnection from uh, the former connections they had in, in Judaism because they had now professed Jesus as Christ. These individuals are supplying for their needs. We're, we're picking up the slack. And so Ananias and Sapphira come along and they sell a piece of their land, which is their prerogative to do. It was not demanded of them. They pledged the proceeds of that sale to the church, which is their prerogative to do. But when they come to the church, they held back a significant portion of that for themselves and they only gave a little or they gave a portion. We don't know how much it was. The Bible doesn't bother to tell us because what matters is that they were not being honest and truthful. Nobody had demanded that gift from them, but they were making it seem as though they were generous in their giving, but the love was not really for the brothers and sisters. The love was for themselves. They wanted the benefit of appearing generous and benevolent when in reality, they didn't really have that kind of a care for the church. They were trying to exalt themselves. So sacrifice can be, can be done like this as well. This point takes the concept to its extreme. I don't, I don't know that we've seen an example of someone who would give their life without love. That seems sort of 
harsh or sort of great. Um, in fact, we read that Jesus says to us, no greater love has a man than this, that he would lay down his life for a friend. So this is a great expression of love. But if it could be done, if someone could sacrifice their own life, but do so without love, perhaps hoping that this would be uh, a benefit that would inspire God to love them back or would earn them their place in heaven, that fiery death would be of no merit before the Lord if it was done without love as its driving purpose. Even something as radical as that would not benefit if it was not undergirded by true love. Though both generosity and sacrifice would be a benefit to the recipient, they would be of no benefit to the giver if there was no love involved. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons is really doing the wrong things. And so our goal and aim should be love, church. It is by the love of God that we are even saved. It is for the love of God that we are even saved. Is Paul's discourse here purely hypothetical? You know, I, I, I framed this as a hypothetical from Paul. He says, if I were to do these things without love, obviously Paul does have love for his churches, right? This is not describing who he is. He loves the church. He cares for the church. He's willing to sacrifice and go to jail for the church. He loves the gospel that he preaches to the church and encourages them in Christ. But where have we seen examples of loveless Christianity? We see it in legalism, don't we? We see it in legalism where people have laws of God but they have not the love of God. This is most popular, popularly characterized in the New Testament by the example of these Pharisees who were willing to follow laws and commands, who outwardly seemed very on board with God's schemes and His plans, but inwardly had no love for the brothers. Inwardly, they were more concerned with exalting themselves and making themselves look good than they were with the glory of God being exalted through their obedience. Legalism is a love for the sake of being right rather than loving the righteousness of God himself. And so Jesus protected his followers from falling into this externally focused religion with his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when he preached in Matthew chapters 6 and 7, where he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. And then he goes on to say, but I say to you that if we are to hate our brothers in our heart, then what have we done? We've already committed murder against him. So it's not so much the keeping of the letter as it is the heart behind the law. It says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that if you lust after a woman in your mind that you have already committed adultery against her. And what is Jesus doing? He's showing us the same thing that Paul's trying to show us here. That external actions with no internal reality are empty. Now, those Pharisees were an absolute... Um, absolutely an example of this empty, hollow religion. And it is something that Christ did not want for his people. It's something that Paul didn't want for his people. We still see it today in churches where it is more important for folks to fit a cultural uh, template than it is for them to really be loved by Christ. We see it in places where there is fear-mongering in the pulpit, where a pastor will use their power and influence to get the congregation to do what they want them to do which is not an expression of love. This is the whole attitude of, are you faithful enough for God to love you, false doctrine, where the, where the person in the pulpit commands that everyone follows the letter of the law to the T or else be forsaken by the Lord God. And this is fear-mongering. It is, it is contesting the, the truth of God rather than affirming the truth of God. 
Here the beauty of God draws in the person who is in awe of it, but the expectations of it are lost. There's a subtler version of this paradox, though. Those are kind of outwardly obvious signs of somebody who follows the letter of the law but does not love. But we also see it subtly in the consumer version of Christianity that is so prevalent in our world today. Where the professing believer is involved with the church because they know the church has things that they can give to them. A sense of community, some place fun and safe for their kids, some really catchy and upbeat worship music. They are keen to get those things as long as they aren't expected to give much in return. What does this church have to offer me? How does this church meet my needs? We are trained in some sense to think this way because as Americans, we live in a commercial society where we think often about our spending power. We're always trying to get the best deal for our money. But that's not how love works, friends. Love is not about getting the most you can from the object of your love. It's not true love. Love is caring for the concerns of others. And so if we have this consumer mindset of what, can, what does church have to offer me, we need to step back and look in the mirror and ask ourselves, do I truly love my church? Or is the church just a bank that I go to to get my spiritual deposits from? Am I giving to the people who are around me? Do I care about them? Am I invested in them? Would I just leave them easily and without, without great cause just to go to a better place that maybe has better programs or a different, a different pastor that's more high profile? Or would I cling to my church and only leave for good reasons? This kind of consumer-driven Christianity, is a, it looks like it's got love in it, doesn't it? But ultimately, it's still about the self we need to recognize that there are very many ways to act as though a Christian, but without love, be something far less than a Christian is. There is no such thing, friends, as loveless Christianity. In fact, we could talk of different examples of it, but if you are a Christian, it is because Christ has changed your heart and made you love the things that you need to love. The God that you used to not love, the God that used to be a threat to your own personal autonomy, if you are a believer, it's because that heart of stone has been replaced by a heart of flesh, and now you can love a God who is a Lord to you, who is a king over your life. You can love a God who is a father to you, who gets to direct you and instruct you. You can love a God who is a general that gives you your orders and who gives you your mission and explains to you how you're to enact that mission. You can love a God who is your great shepherd, who with his rod and his staff keep you from danger and comforts you. You can love this God because of what Christ has done to make you a loving person. It begins with the Lord. And as we continue through 1 Corinthians 13, friends, Paul will teach us just how beautiful this godly love really is. Let's bow in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this instruction that Paul the Apostle has given to us this morning, and we pray, God, that we would not forget it quickly. We pray, Father, that you would um, help it to be hidden in our hearts so that we not, might not sin against you. Lord God, let us consider our brothers and sisters and consider the weight of what it means to love you and to love others. You really can't do one without the other. Father, your great commandment uh, goes hand in hand. Love the Lord God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to grow in that respect, that we would care for those who are near to us, those who have been put into our sphere, into our oikos, our sphere of influence, God. We pray that you would bless us as we conclude our service today. 
Let us remember that this is the day that the Lord has made, not the two hours that the Lord has made. Father, help us to think about ways that we might worship you continually as we go on, as we get our meal, as we fellowship with other believers after the service is done, as we seek you in personal reading of your word and prayer, as we hopefully join again for the evening service, Lord God. Put it on our hearts to let this day be a day where we rejoice and reflect in the greatest source of peace and hope in our lives, in your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his perfect name. Amen.